We were, I was in the territorials before the war, and I can remember my mother coming out. I, the veranda of the house had been closed in, and I was sleeping out there. And she opened the window, and she was crying. And she said, "We're, we're at war with Germany." And I was just thinking, "Well, I hope it keeps long enough till I get there." And I got there all right. <laughs> Welcome to Courage and Valour, the New Zealanders in the Italian campaign of World War II. Episode 1, Joining the Army and Training in New Zealand. The Courage and Valour podcast is the story of ordinary New Zealanders who served and fought to liberate Italy from fascist and Nazi rule during World War II. The Italian campaign for the 2nd Division of the New Zealand Army was a difficult and long drawn out slog from the time they arrived in Taranto in the south of Italy in October 1943 through to the end of the war in May 1945 when they had arrived in Trieste. However, before the New Zealand Division even arrived in Italy, New Zealanders had been involved in the campaign from the time of the invasion of Sicily. New Zealand airmen with the Royal Air Force were serving in fighters, reconnaissance and bombers in Italian skies. And Kiwi sailors had been involved in the initial landings that took place long before the New Zealand Army arrived in the country. Throughout the campaign, the Kiwis and their allies moved from battle to battle, skirmish to skirmish, river to river, valley to valley and village to village, slowly making their way northwards up the country of Italy. Their aim was to beat back, evict and eradicate the Nazi German forces from the remnants of the previous fascist Italian regime that had had their firm grasp on the Italian nation. Bit by bit, battle by battle, the New Zealanders brought freedom to the Italians. The Kiwis were part of a greater Allied effort, which was made up of the British 8th Army, the US 5th Army, the Indian Army, the Canadians, the Free French, the South Africans, the Poles, the non-fascist Italian forces and many other armies. In the skies above Italy were bombers, fighters, transports, photo reconnaissance and spotter planes of the Royal Air Force, the Royal Australian Air Force, the South African Air Force, the United States Army Air Force and aircraft flying from carriers in the Royal Navy and US Navy. Meanwhile, Royal Navy and US Navy ships alongside other Allied vessels and merchant marines were keeping the battle supplied with troops, arms, food and more and the seaways clear of the German Navy. New Zealand's part in the Italian campaign may have been one small cog in a huge Allied wheel, but their contribution towards the success of the campaign was significant indeed. It would become a huge part of New Zealand's own proud history, but today the story has all but been forgotten. New Zealanders in all three services had been fighting in the North African campaign from 1940 to 1943. The Desert War was finally won by the Allies and the campaign was officially declared over on the 13th of May 1943, with the Kiwis having played a large part in that victory. Between May and September, the 2nd New Zealand Division, which was New Zealand's main body of the Army's 2nd New Zealand Expeditionary Force in North Africa, was withdrawn back to their home base at Māori Camp just outside of Cairo in Egypt. Many of the longest-serving men of the division were sent home to New Zealand on a long furlough. Others were assigned away from the front lines. However, the division's war was far from over, and in those four months at Māori, they reconsolidated, receiving drafts of thousands of fresh men from New Zealand. Many of the old hands of the division now had to indoctrinate the new boys 
Although most of the replacements had been in the army already for some years, acting as garrison troops in New Zealand or the Pacific. Together they now trained in Egypt for the next big push in the war against the Nazis. Italy had deposed and imprisoned its fascist leader Benito Mussolini on the 24th of July 1943. Mussolini was replaced by Marshal Pietro Badoglio, whose government continued to oppose the Allies till secret talks brought Badoglio on side and he signed a ceasefire with the Allies. He then declared that Italy was at war with Germany on the 18th of October 1943. By this time, the New Zealand army had already landed in Italy. So who were these Kiwis that went to war on Italian soil? Some were already hardened veterans of the campaign in the North African desert, experienced fighters and battle-hardened men. Others were arriving freshly trained from New Zealand to bolster and reinforce the Kiwi forces for the new campaign. In this episode, we hear about the training of the soldiers of the 2nd New Zealand Division before they headed away to war. We hear how they ended up in the army, how they defended New Zealand and how they prepared for war. As you will hear, some of them had already served at home for some years before they arrived at Māori Camp. Others had seen action in the desert and some were relative newbies to the army. One of the old hands who trained in New Zealand and saw action in North Africa before he went to Italy was Colin Murray. In 1940... Um, I went into camp to do the basic training on the Cambridge race course and um, I was put in the medical corps. Uh, quite a lot of young chaps that I'd played football a bit with and been at school with, of course, the same age as me, uh, they finished up in the medical corps too and we did it a few days of uh, learning how to put on splints and and uh, uh, pressure points to stop bleeding and such like. It wasn't anywhere near exciting enough for us. So we put in a, 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 a transfer, see if we get a transfer to the infantry, and they very gladly accepted us. As soon as he was old enough to get into war, Norm Harris joined the army. And they sent, I was sent to the Great Barrier Island. I had about five months over there. Uh, in an infantry uh, unit, 2nd Battalion Waikato Regiment. Uh, it was thought that the, the Japs might use uh, Great Barrier as a jumping off place to attack New Zealand. And they put us there uh, to sort of occupy them, something for them to feed on until uh, other people could get here. But it would have been too late for us. Many young men were called up for service in the ballot, which was a government-drawn lottery where men could be pulled from a hat and told they were now in the armed forces. When called, many would spend a brief few months training in the army before being released back to farms or other occupations where they were needed, till the time came that the army actually needed them. One such soldier was Bryn Hughes. In 1941, I went to Wairu and did my first three months there in the snow, August, September, October, and then out again at home. Uh, I don't know for how long now. Quite a while anyway. And then I was called up again and went to... Uh, uh, Solway showgrounds, with a camp down there for a couple of years, and then to uh, Palmerston North, and then back to Solway, and uh, 
Eu usei tudo, eu vim de Linton, que foi em 1943. Most of those who entered the army had no real choice of what role they were going to play on the battlefront, such as Neil Scott, who found himself placed into a field ambulance unit. When I was called out, and it was the beginning of 42, to Buckle Street in Wellington, and um, the whole crowd there, of course, and they said, right, when your name's called out, uh, you form over here. And once they'd called the whole lot out, they came to our group and said, right, you're the medical corps. Um, we said, why? And they wouldn't tell us, but they, he did say, but the last lot they offered us, we rejected the whole lot of them. But I know that three of the guys that were in that group fainted every time they saw blood, so I'm not quite sure how they got on. Um, but that's how I got into the medical corps. Um, I was in camp at um, Johnsonville. Um, until my birthday on 1st of September when um, they took out 12 of us who were all A grade and we went up to Awapuni and we went on final leave from there but then went down to Trentham, spent another five weeks there before we sailed on the hospital ship Monganui. Ted Homewood, known as Bluey, had already joined the Royal New Zealand Air Force in early 1940. However, he was itching to get overseas and fight, and he felt he could accelerate his progress by switching to the Army. One day, while on leave in Christchurch, he went up to an Army recruiting booth and signed up. Within weeks, he was lined up at the wharf about to board a ship overseas for service with the third echelon. However, his wish was not to be granted just yet. He and several others that were quayside were pulled out of the lines of the boarding ships. He was discovered to be too young. He'd lied about his age when he had joined the Royal New Zealand Air Force. The Army sent him back to Auckland, where he was initially manpowered into a factory, and after much protesting, he eventually made his way back to the Army on home duties. So anyway, then I went into the first Orcs and went over to Hillcrest and we were in the tents there. And uh, oh, then we, we went out uh, wiring all the, the beaches at Takapuna and all that. We wired all that to keep the Japs back because they were supposed to come. And then we went out to Derry Flat and all and pinched all the wire, the barbed wire up the fence. And, oh, the cockies just go mad. But it wasn't our fault. So we wired all Takapuna Beach and... Uh, the next thing, they, I went to uh, Naranek on a uh, commando course. This fellow used to be up in the, in the bush and he was what we had to do. And we in little bunches of five and we were all over the countryside. And uh, marching, of course, and at night time and then they'd give us what to do. You know, one, one part there we took the Silverdale post office and all this and, oh, Laugh, we went in there, but late because they used to run the uh, run the phone and all through the you know, and we went in there all laughing and they surely screamed. You thought we were going there to rape, don't you think? And and anyway, uh, we had our crowbar, a married fella. We called him crowbar because you used to have it done up with your gear, you know, whatever you're going to do. We used to have uh, sticks of jelly to tie around the piles and all that. 
And uh, well, we did this Rosedale Bridge and all that at Albany. Instead of having half a stick or a quarter of a stick of jelly to make a big bang, God, we had about three or four sticks. We just about blew the bridge down. All the planks come up and all this, you know. Oh, hell, we were, we were, we were just cowboys, eh? Anyway, uh, where else would we go? Silverdale. We went into Silverdale uh, pub and there and just listened to these fellas. And they said, oh, I'll lay these fellas up from there and neck and we're going to go out to get them tonight and all that. That was us fellas. They were telling us, you know, this is what the home guard was. And so we sat up and hid in the bush and the old, old home guard come down, the, the boss and all was in the car and he's there and these fellas all marched behind like, like uh, Captain Manimus, you know, and they marched out of town and then we went up town. And that's when we did the did the uh, post office met over. Yeah. So anyway, we got there. So then we get up in the Wairua there over the bridge and up and we set the night back up in there. And uh, we all had 10 rounds at those days. We when we went on leave. We all had 10 rounds. I suppose you had to knock over 10 Japs and then I don't know what you're going to do for ammunition, you know. Everybody had 10. We, had, we used to take the rifle home with 10 rounds. Anyway... But I rebelled about a pigeon over there, because I didn't know what a pigeon was just about then. And we had that anyway. We had to live off the land. Like when we got up to walk, was there, we were pinching the apples, living on apples and all this, because that's what we're supposed to do. And uh, anyway, uh, we got around. Oh, we got in a, got a fella. We managed to get some. They used to bring up the trucks with, with our info and all that, what we had to do. And, there and we managed to get a, get a couple of gallons of gas and we got it for the fella there and he put us in his boat and took us right around there and down up to walk with him. Oh, it was terrific going around there, I never forgot it. And uh, so we got, got up there and we got into the, the apple orchard and we were in the, in the uh, packing room and about two o'clock in the morning they come, come for me, I had to go. I was going out, I went back, got back to Naranek in the early morning for breakfast and uh, I've got to go on leave because I'm going overseas. Joining the Army gave many men the opportunity to travel, one that they'd not had before. Harry Hopping of Tiawa Moody was among them. I was called up and I had to have a medical. I went to Waikato Hospital, had my tonsils out and then I was called up and went up to Wangarei. Actually, at that stage, I was a real country bumpkin. I didn't even know where Wong Ray was. So they put us on the train. There was quite a few of us at that stage. We got on the train here in Timuru and up to Auckland, to the station up there. We started off about 10 o'clock in the morning here, and it was about or two or three o'clock. And when we got to Auckland, we had to hang around in the in the Auckland station there for the train going up to Wong Ray which they called the Moorpork, I don't know. So we got on this train and it used to stop at every little station and what have you. On the way up, we arrived up there about three o'clock in the morning. We got off the train at Kensington Park and first thing we had, we had a, um, our bedding. It was consisted of a, a pack. It was like a, a bit like a wool pack and it was handed to us and they said, over, over there, he said, there's a pile of hay. He said, you fill that up. And so and that was our bedding. And 
we spent the night there, and next day we were all got together and got our uniforms, and we said they said we'll, you'll be kept in Kensington Park under under tents, but we had to put our own tents up. So we, this is where we did our training. We were in. Uh, 1918 tents which leaked uh, quite badly um, so when it rained we slept on the grandstand and of course the usual spit and polish our, our uh, battalion commander was a chap named Charlie Mackesy um, his uh, common name for us was Ice Cream Charlie now I wouldn't know how he ever got that name Jack Hepburn was our company and uh, company commander. Um, and uh, my company sergeant major was sitting there, Bob O'Brien, uh, was my company sergeant major. I went to camp, we went, went to camp in Cambridge in 1940. We were in Cambridge for three months there. I was with the um, Waikato Battalion at that time. Colin here was uh, in the first company that I was. I became a sergeant major at, at, um, when war, war went into, when war was declared I went into camp for three months, came out as a sergeant major and Colin was in, in I went to, to B Company in the Waikato Regiment and Colin was one of the, Colin and I had been to school together and he could probably tell you the odd story of, of different, <laughs> different little phrases we got up to as a platoon. <laughs> uh, we developed into a pretty good sort of unit, I tell you. We started training with our first World War stuff, the Lewis gun. Our web gear was first World War stuff. Later on, we were equipped with the Bren guns. Um, we became super efficient with firearms. Jack Cummins was to become an instructor, so he would be training many of the men joining up to the army. He gives good insight as to what level of training they got before they went overseas. I joined up when I was 18, shortly after I turned 18. I joined the 1st Wellington Regiment and I stayed in that for my basic training and I was on... I was in, in Palmerston North and uh, I noticed on the routine notice board uh, an opportunity to train as an instructor. So I put my name forward and I was duly sent to Trentham. And I did three months pretty intensive training and trained as a small arms instructor. And in that you, you, you had to do uh, the playground drill um, physical training and small arms, which was small arms was my main main feature. Was rifles, a Bren gun, uh, the old Lewis gun, uh, Tommy gun, and pistol, and hand grenade. They were the main ones. Yeah, had a little a little bit of introduction to the figures but only an introduction. I had to zero rifles. One of the jobs we had to do was a recruiter would come along and he'd be shooting everywhere. And on the 25 yards range, you'd have to take the rifle. And I could put a, a 
five shots in the area of a penny and 25 yards and the recruit would be sent down to the armourer who would then adjust the sights from the sighting of the rifle. I was instructing by the time I was, well by the time I was 20, probably when I was 19. And I was doing that until I went overseas at 21. 90% of the guys were about the same age as yourself. You would occasionally come up with a guy who obviously knew his way around a rifle and you'd say to him, well, what did you do? I was a deer hunter. Uh, okay, carry on. He, he, he just knew what he was doing. You know. Training officers came through and they had to be taken for pistol shooting. And we do that. It's just a job. I mean, you were the bloke who was teaching them how to do it. There's no, uh, you're a lieutenant, I'm a sergeant. Just, just do the job. So, simple as that. The actual training and firing of live rounds was extremely limited. Jack explains the level of experience that each recruit would get firing live rounds before they ventured off overseas into the war. This is quite strange. He would get five rounds on the 25-yard range. That's where he got his basic training. And I don't remember, it wouldn't be much more than that on the 100-yard range. And I think they went back to the 200-yard range. If he fired 20 rounds, I don't really remember, but if he fired that much, he was lucky. And as these guys went off to battle with that man of experience behind them. We had a major in charge of us who was, he was on Crete. And he saw how ineptly trained our blokes had been. And he was a fanatic about getting them to shoot straight and shoot right, you know. And that was, that was his big thing. They had to get it right. Because he could see guys going over with it. And it was pretty basic training, very minimal. Give a man 20 rounds of 3 out 3 to fire. And I don't think at, at any time in action I would have fired suddenly shooting at 200 yards. Like 25 yards. Yeah. What we do is each one came along and he was given the basic, the rudiments of how to operate the load and unload his rifle. Then he would be given, put the rifle would be put into a stand and a target would be set up and he would be told to aim the rifle at that target then you'd go along and check that he had aimed in the right place. Now I used to pick up fellows who were colour blind in this because the target was yellow and black and you'd find the rifle pointing up and you'd find out the guy was actually colour blind and he hadn't been picked up in his medical, so he's off to the medical again, and it'll be, often be the case. However, from that point, uh, once you satisfied the man knew how to aim the rifle, you had a, a little round of, about a two-inch round of metal with a hole in the middle, and it was, if I remember rightly, it was painted black and, uh, black and yellow. So the recruit lay down on the ground, and you lay in front of him, and he aimed the rifle at this hole in the pin. You sat there with the thing in front of you, 
and he aimed at and you could tell whether he was aiming in the right place. Uh, before you did that, you inspected his rifle and his pouches and his hands to make sure there were no spare rounds hanging around that he had when he got in, otherwise he'd... Okay, he was satisfied then that he, he could, and then he'd be past his fit to go to the rifle range. And on the rifle range, you'd lay down beside the... They'd come and they had them lined up, they'd be like a school shed, and they had them lined up in the hundreds and each man would come up and he'd get down beside you and you make sure he's holding the rifle correctly, you know, this hand and that hand, <coughs> and make sure he was squeezing the trigger, not pulling it, and you go through all those motions and you say, okay, the right, so okay, here's the target to fire his shot. And when he had done, he took his target, so you'd find his target, you might, you might have had a there's the target, he might have had a, there's the centre, he might have had a whole group up there. So obviously his rifles, I mean, he's shooting all right, but his rifle's out of line. So he's sending up the armour to line his rifle up. The, the other one would be probably not even hitting the target or scattered around the target. If he scattered around the target, he, he wasn't aiming right, he was probably nerves and sort of thing. Because a lot of blacks would hold the rifle away from the shoulder, thinking they'd dodge, they'd avoid the kick, and that was the wrong thing to do. Because if you come back, so that make sure they had it pulled right in time. He just went through all those various motions, and, uh, and the rifle was well out of line. He went and he got it zeroed, and finally got him sort of. I would say probably about 80, 90 percent of them got through all right, but there's always the odd one that you, and he'd come back for another go. He'd find out why he was off the target, was the rifle a way out. You would take the rifle from him at that point. I remember it's not very clear, but I think he took the rifle over and I would fire my five, five shots at the centre of the target and I could say, well, there the rifle is, and he's aiming in the wrong place. I'm aiming it right here and the rifle is going up, up that corner, that corner. And just little things like that, just sort of a daily routine really. The range drill was pretty strict. Rifles were always pointing towards the butts, down, rifle in hand, turn around and wave around. And the loading and unloading was strict. Basically when the men arrived at the rifle, at the butts, they had nothing in the rifle because he's given his clip of ammunition and he loaded it there. He fired his five rounds, you had the five shells, and he, un and he unloaded and he went through the drill of unloading and marched away. So there shouldn't have been any. I had one near escape on the grenade range with a man who, in a grenade range, he went into a proper firing bay and was all revetted with him. And when the man threw his grenade, you said, right, down behind the parapet. And you put your hand on his shoulder to make sure he was down. And I have one character who didn't get down. I had my hand on his shoulder. He was down all right, but he was tin hat there, and he had about that much space. He was just peering through it. And luck would piece of piece of something would come up and hit him between, straight between the eyes, and went round the side of his head. And it was, I've been looking a bit silly for a while. 
But um, well, I did. I had another man who froze on a grenade, and then he's got a life grenade in hand. But until he lets it go, it's quite safe. So I just took him on the wrist, and he released his hand. The grenade to fall outside the revetment, but in this case it didn't. It fell on top of the revetment, and we were handling, I think, it was three second grenades. So he he let it go on top, and not a, not a hope in hell of picking it up and throwing it. So straight behind his legs, shut him down like that, and the party was standing on the behind me watching. And I just in one movement dropped this bloke to the ground, and then grabbed the party around the legs and put him on the ground. And all that, I suppose, three seconds. The grenade went off. And if the party had been standing there, he would have got it fair in the face. Uh, that, that, was, that was the sort of thing you had to be ready for. Um, the party was only there by permission because normally didn't let people come in, stand behind, you know. And uh, yeah, you got this guy. <laughs> and then we'd have misfires, the grenades wouldn't go off. And out where the grenades were, were landing with the firing, was a bloody great mud hole, about knee deep in mud. And you'd have to go out and find them. And with a plug of telegram and a fuse on it, you'd find the grenade. You'd put the plug down beside it and then buzz off out of it. Blow it up. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't leave them lying around. Tom McLennan's entry into the army was a little different from most of those who were called up for service. He explains how he ended up with a plum job. My old man George drafted him. So he said something to me because he was in the first, Dad was the first World War. So anyhow, we came into Hamilton. We went to the RSA, well, Army headquarters or what. My old man met this bloke and they used to have a few drinks together occasionally. He said, oh, Tom's going to camp. He said, oh, yeah. And he said, what do you want to do? I said, oh, I don't know. He said, you know anything about milk? I said, yes. He said, you know anything about vegetables? I said, yeah. Hmm. I said, but I'm supposed to be there at 11 o'clock. Oh, don't worry about that, boys. He said, you go in on the one o'clock bus. So I have all my, my gear. What <laughs> We got Cambridge, the race course it was. And I get out of the bus, and I thought, geez, I'll get, you know, I'm running about three hours late. And there's a corporal, I think, or an officer, but he was a corporal or a sergeant. He said, McLennan? Called out a few times, said, yes. Oh, he said, come on in. So we shook hands, he told me his name, I know he came from Thames. So we had a look around, he said, uh, Passed some comment, he said, you know about milk and vegetables? I said, yes. He said, where do you want to sleep? I said, oh, I don't know. Well, he said, you can go down on the lines into a tent, 
Or he said, you could sleep up here. And it was in where the tote was and, the, and there was a place up there was about, oh, three or four slept up there. In the grandstand, I said, oh, I wouldn't mind here. He said, right out. So then I, oh, I oh, you said, you can have your mess at the back of the sergeants, that's right. And I did that for a while. And we used to run this milk. I had to take the milk in every morning and on in the butcher shop, help out there a bit, but not much. And then they took me down to the uh, vegetable store. Well, it was a place where I remember as big as this. Well, it stunk. It was a hell of a mess. And I just said something. They said, what, what would you do? I said, clean it all up. I said, God, I said, kill any bugger. And he said, right, how many men do you want? And I said, what, what? He said, how many men do you want? I said, oh, I don't know. He said, half a dozen be enough? I said, yeah. And now, next, now later, there's half a dozen McLennan. I said, yeah. What are we going to do? I said, we've got to clean this bloody place out. And we threw out everything that was a bit off. And they put it into bags and took it away. And this chap came and he said, now what? I said, what's restocking? Good. So I don't know if somebody in Cambridge put all the vegetables, fresh cabbages. And then <coughs> we'd been in, I'd been there for about a fortnight, I think. Used to eat at the back of the sergeant's mess. And one night there was something going on, I forgot what might happen. And I said, what's wrong? And they said, oh, we can't keep up. I said, oh, so I'll come out. So I went out and was serving on the sergeant's tables and that. And I got to know most of them pretty well and I did that from then on and then when we were, when I first went to the camp, the Auckland Halraki were also in Cambridge and there was, I don't know how many, um, my number was 930 if I remember rightly, so they'd be around at 800 or 900. Rifles. Pat Green from Hamilton was another soldier who would end up fighting in Italy. He recalls his training in New Zealand, first with the Territorials and then with the regular force army. We'd been uh, mobilised and had three glorious months at Narrow Neck and three better months at Cambridge. Uh, and it was in the, in the spring, it was lovely in Cambridge, great town. Well, we had to do a battalion, Waikato. Uh, 16th Waikato's were mobilised there and uh, the officers and NCOs had had three months of training before that up at Narrow Neck, which was first class. I went to a deaf school of instruction twice in e Egypt and the instructors and the instruction wasn't anywhere near as good as what I'd, we'd got up at uh, Narrow Neck. All sorts. It was all sorts of things: weapon training, a drill, um, fieldcraft stuff. Uh, I even did a, a week or a fortnight's course of that three months on uh, 
learning to be a uh, quartermaster sergeant. It was a rather interesting job. <laughs> I liked it. And uh, when we went to Cambridge, they seemed to do it, run a bit differently from other outfits. I was uh, mixed up with overseeing staff and uh, uh, people that were reporting for duty, uh, fatigue duty, uh, the cookhouse and the officers and sergeants messes. And I had to inspect the, the tables of both uh, the, those messes to see that the Thing, the tables were set perfectly and every bloody thing was spot on. And I came from a humble home that had a knife, fork and spoon and they, these officers used to have a dinner every once a week and uh, they had <laughs> lots of cutlery. <laughs> and I had a, an old First World War major, he was 2RC of the battalion, a good bloke. He'd been a teacher at boys high for many years. He, he was on my back <laughs> and uh, he, he expected me to know all these finer things. I had to tell him in the finish that I, I was from the wrong wrong side of the track in Franklin <laughs> and uh, route marches. We went up to the top of the sanatorium hill in Cambridge uh, and enjoyed it. Well I did, I was on the store track riding up there swinging out of the blokes that were on the steep pitch just before you get to the car, you bastards, why don't you swing your bloody arms and look like bloody soldiers instead of browns, cows or something. And, you know, some of those fellas were, they were positively rude to me. <laughs> but as soon as we got up there, we put up trestle uh, top tables and the uh, first thing we did was pour them out a chilled drink of orange juice or lime juice. They looked at lime juice with a bit of, uh, there was a lot of bullshit about it from the First World War and a lot of the blacks were, <laughs> they weren't, they weren't very likely to uh, be uh, having sexual intercourse or anything, but they, they weren't going to take any risks. <laughs> One of my jobs was to stand outside the mess halls <coughs> afterwards or, and beforehand, you'd go through with a, uh, the officer of the day and, and, and there'd be about 12 blacks at a table and you'd call them to order any complaints. And uh, the blacks would say no. And then when, when we went out after the meal, I had to stand near the slop tin to see that the blacks put the slops in the bloody bucket um, 40 gallon drum and that there was no razor blades or tea leaves in there because this tapas was been contracted out to a pig farmer and uh, uh, the officer was a young bloke uh, that was standing outside me and I said have you noticed all those blokes that are tipping their tea out? He looked for what? My god he said so they are. He said I wonder what's happened. Well I said ask him. Uh, they said, you're not drinking your tea today, soldier. No, no, I wasn't very thirsty. Mm. And another bloke said, oh, it's not worth bloody drinking, this sort of thing. I'd been through the mess beforehand, and I said to the blokes, watch it. I got that killcock in the bloody tea today. 
And there was his bloody jacket, right, left, and centre, tipping the stuff out. And the officer, he didn't bloody know. No one told him. There was a was it bromide they put into it? Uh, well, um, it was nothing. Uh, legend was from the First World War that lime lime juice was the stuff that did that. Oh, right. Possibly they served it to sa um, sailors in peacetime uh, when they were very long voyages, five month jobs, and might have had to tone them down a bit. I don't know. <coughs> We were so keen that I remember, um, even after we'd finished, after we'd had our tea at night, we would get out between the tent lines and drill one another. It sounds strange today, but we did. Um, and uh, strip a Bren gun in the middle of the night in the darkness and then put it together and see who could do it the quickest and so on. We did an awful lot of route marching from after Cambridge we went out of camp for a short time and then went back into camp at Hopper Hopper uh, there for some time and uh, then left there and went into another camp at Claudeland's Racecourse in Hamilton. And that's when we really started route marching. And on one occasion, we marched out uh, from Hamilton out through Wata Wata uh, across the Waipa River and uh, along uh, to Karamu. We did night manoeuvres uh, with the local home guard and slept on the side of the road. Uh, marched back the next morning and the following day we set to and we marched to Auckland. Um, that took five days, uh, just sleeping on the side of the road uh, each night. Um, uh, and our feet suffered dreadfully, of course, hobnail boots, uh, carrying our rifle and haversack and all the gear. Um, and uh, I tell you what, we were pretty sore lot when we first arrived at the camp at Papakura, but about a mile away we were met by the local Papakura army band and they played us into the camp and uh, it's amazing what a, <laughs> a band does to you. So we went into, went into Papakura and we were there a fortnight and the first contingent that had been in Fiji came back, back to Papakura and they went on leave but uh, in the meantime they kicked us down to Papak to Hopper Hopper midwinter in bloody bell tents and uh, there was two of us in ours which was about six too many. I'd been in one in Papakura in Cambridge where there was two of us and uh, you put your mess gear down somewhere alongside you in the, in the bloody hut and in the morning you couldn't separate them it, the mess gear, the cutlery was frozen uh, under your tin plate and your mug was too, it was a tin mug and uh, it was bloody cold in there and there was no, it was, being early in the war there was no recreation, there was one recreation hut in Hopper Hopper but that was for old blokes from the First World War that were guarding the 
there was a big ammo dump in a tunnel there in that hill at the back of the parade, parade ground and where, where we were camped. Uh, <coughs> uh, and uh, we had five or seven weeks there in midwinter. It was bloody terrible. Uh, you'd get a hard frost and then the fog would drift down the river by about eight o'clock and you'd be out on parade a bit after eight and uh, they usually had rifle drill or a machine gun drill or something and you had to do, handle these things with fingers and uh, you were dropping your bloody rifle and, 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 and that meant you had to run up the round the goalposts from one end of the football field to the other and if you did it too slow you had to do it again and this sort of bullshit and uh, ablution stands was a pipe out in the bloody a trough out in the bloody paddock with a few holes in it and and blokes holding a match under the pipe to to melt the frozen ice you had to have a wash well you didn't have to have a wash it wasn't compulsory as long as you shaved and you couldn't shave without water, and the water was frozen. But they gave us a cup of tea uh, at Ravelli. We had a band in there, and they used to march up and down the lines, bang, and the bloke with the big drum, boom, boom, boom. And uh, we'd throw mallets and boots at him. Uh, uh, and it was just a, a Kelly drum and about four uh, side drums. and. Uh, they gave us this cup of bloody tea, and it, it was pretty bloody ordinary. It was coffee, I think. It was bloody ordinary stuff, and we weren't coffee drinkers. But I'd, I'd been around a bit in the Terries, and I'd mixed up with a few of First World War blokes. And I said to these fellows, it's the best thing we give, they'll give us all day. You can shave with the bloody stuff. It's not only warm, but softens your beard, and it gives you a nice tan as well. <laughs> and, uh, so... Uh, they, they, they thought I was, uh, you know, ahead of my time. <laughs> so, so, different blokes uh, contributed different bloody things that they knew. We used to go for marches, 24 up to 30 miles a day uh, of a Friday, come back in, uh, and we went up into the bush at uh, Ekatahuna and around that area for bush training and uh, we did a stunt out at Castle Point on the way out there where we camped the night in the woolshed and then the one other night we when we went didn't quite go that far we went to uh, we camped on the roadside slept in the water tables on our water sheets you know it wasn't wet but when we just bunked down in the water table, uh, yeah, we had a, just about every 1942, I think it was, there was a big earthquake and it's a fair bit of damage done in Marston and we were on picket duty around chimneys, different homes, plenty of cups of teas and hot scones. I did a march in Trentham one time. We marched from Trentham Camp up to Lake Wairapa. And it was an exercise in moving troops and we'd pick it up by truck and take us so far and then you march so far and the trucks would pick you up. 
and we I actually marched over the Rimatakas and I was in charge of a platoon of guys and um, I wouldn't let anybody out of the ranks and I wouldn't let anybody get out of step and I would make them rest properly at the 10 minute holes. And on the homeward trip, everybody's pretty tired because we'd had almost a sleepless night. And the same rules applied, you don't break ranks, you can in step and you, you know, and we would be marching along and we'd mow down platoons that had demoralised, men that were just walking and the seconds had broken up and I'd just, no, you stay in the ranks and I keep them, keep them there. And there's a bit of a, you know, we've got a bit of pipe music and occasionally that sort of help. But I just, just you know, they're going to stay there. And I proved the point that I, I got my blokes back all intact in one piece. And the sergeant major said to me afterwards, you know, commented on it. Um, so we continued with route marching. Um, they marched us out to um, Miranda. And the whole, we used to suffer badly from tinea uh, in their feet. And of course it could spread to other parts of the body, in the groin and under chaps' armpits and so on. And they used to march us up and down the, the sand. There wasn't any cure for it really then. And uh, they marched us up and down the sand barefooted. To, to try and clean this out of your toes. And every morning we had to get up and uh, it was winter time and we had to, everyone had to have a swim. Uh, and it didn't matter, you didn't have to stay in as long as you got wet, that was it. Um, and then we started from Tabakura, we were shifted out into the hills uh, of Bombay uh, into the bush, and we built a camp there, uh, in tents again. And they lent us the trucks, uh, and we'd go right down to Rangariri, and we'd get uh, big uh, truckloads of rapu, and each platoon built their own recreation hut out of scrap timber, and uh, with a big fireplace at the end, the old Maori-style fireplace of corrugated iron, it was packed with soil around it. Um, there was plenty of firewood, of course, and we did a lot of our own cooking. Colin Murray and Bob O'Brien had gone to school together, and now they were in the army together. Bob became my platoon commander, and along the way he promoted me to corporal. Um, we uh, started then doing guerrilla training. And uh, they used to reckon in those days that it cost two and sixpence a day to keep a man in camp, as that was the sustenance allowance. So if you're out of camp, you got it added to your wages. You didn't see it, of course. It was just a, a book entry in your, in your pay book. Um, and so they would give us this... Uh, sustenance allowance and a 1500 weight truck and they'd give us um, an objective to attack perhaps 30 mile away and there'd be three platoons out from the battalion at a time 
uh, and we're all enemies of one another, uh, and we have to attack the objective, we have to get there, we have to live off the land, sleeping rough, um, and uh, we, we had a wonderful time, really. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, shooting turkeys and uh, <laughs> getting into trouble. Uh, Bob will uh, tell you the story how we, uh, we blew up a... We were supposed to attack a country store. Um, and uh, we were all pretty proficient with using gelignite in those days. I'd grown up helping my father blast stumps out of the swamp. Um, and um, also I'd done a course on uh, explosives at Naranek camp. Uh, so um, we drove past this store one night and, and threw a plug of jelly out on the road. Um, but of course the road was metal. So uh, the jelly was supposed to signify that we'd attacked this uh, store. Uh, but what we didn't realise was the metal was going to fly in all directions. It smashed all the front window of this country store. So that cost us all our sustenance to repay the store. <laughs> but we did it on that occasion. Uh, I got permission from a... a housewife uh, was away down uh, and I said to the boys, I was a section leader, I said I'll go down and uh, and um, see if we can, it's legal to shoot some of these turkeys, there's a big mob of them, it's quite a big sheep farm I think. So I went down and of course the first thing the lady said, have a cup of tea <laughs> and out came the fruitcake and so on. So, uh, you know, all the boys were envious of me, when I, but the, yes, they said, help yourself to the turkey. So that was the day we were going back. And uh, we arrived back at the camp uh, with uh, the ute full of turkeys <laughs> from, um, from Bombay. We moved then away up North Auckland, I guess the Japs were getting closer. Uh, to a place called Ruatongata, up north of Kamo. Um, and uh, it's the first time we were in huts, but they were all just in pieces in the paddock and we had to put them together. And we continued with our guerrilla training up there. Um, and on one of those uh, occasions, uh, way out in the... Uh, the Wop Wop somewhere up in the Bay of Islands and I had my 21st birthday. So I'd already done three years in the army and within a fortnight I was on final leave. And after that they allotted us to our, to our uh, sections where we had to go and I went to the Howrakis. And after that we, we were decamped and went out to Cowrie, which was somewhere near Hickorangi. This was our camp. We, we went out there and it had to be built. We went under tents for a little while and we had to put in new roads and, and uh, did training at the same time. Uh, they, when I went there they said, Hopping, what have you done? I thought for a while, well the best thing you can say is that you're a driver because I do, I'd worked in a garage. 
So I got a dri job driving a truck and I was attached to the Maori company. Now most of these Maoris were from from uh, West Coast, which were terrific, terrific jokers they were. And uh, I used to do the driving there, I used to bring the rations in and take the officers where they wanted to go. And, and uh, we had two two 1500 weights in a, in a 300 weight truck. Uh, of course the corporal he had a 30 weight truck and we used to look after vehicles and do all the carting. We used to take all the, all the rations out and all the rubbish we used to take up to the local farmer and he used to feed all the bits and pieces to the pigs and we'd go down and wash all the, the drums out down the river and back to camp again. Well, eventually I turned 21. I was sick of the army by this time. I was, I'd been in the army for about two years up there. Uh, they wouldn't let you out because uh, this Jap scare was on then. We never used to get very much leave. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about that. When we got leave, before the Yanks had come, uh, they sent us home on leave and we, we had to take our rifles and ammunition with us. So you can imagine walking up from the station with a rifle on your, on your shoulder and a belt full of ammunition. Imagine that happening today. So we used to bring those home and I'd put them in the wardrobe and, and uh, we'd be, have, have about a week's leave and then you'd get on the train and away you go back again. Well, we did quite a few manoeuvres up north. Uh, the Japs care was on and uh, it wasn't until the Americans came that they sort of let us off the hook a bit, and that's when I got called up and said I'd be in the 10th reinforcements. episode of Courage and Valour is entitled Into Italy Into Battle. It'll cover the second division of the New Zealand Expeditionary Force preparing in Egypt, crossing to Italy and getting into the first battles on the Sangro River. In this episode you've heard from Bob O'Brien, Colin Murray, Norm Harris, Bryn Hughes, Neil Scott, Ted Bluey Homewood, Harry Hopping, Jack Cummins, Pat Green and Tom McLennan. Grateful acknowledgements to all those who have taken part in the series and to the Tiawa Mutu branch of the Royal New Zealand Returned and Services Association for their support. The recordings for this episode were written, edited and produced by Dave Homewood.